0: All right, Acts chapter one, then we are uh, we 're interacting with this one passage in chapter one, and we 're kind of stuck here for a while uh, in a good way uh, it 's the brief, very brief but very significant description of the great event that we identify as the Ascension of Christ. The passage here in Acts 1, as I've described before, is simply the ascension through the perspective of the apostles that were there that day. And we've broadened out the study. We we did look at this passage from their viewpoint, but then we've also looked at the ascension through the eyes of those that are in heaven and um, their experience, heaven's perspective, so to speak, on the ascension. And then we've begun a a kind of a mini-series in the midst of the series as we're working our way through the book of Acts and just starting out with that. And we are doing a series now on the Great and significant reasons for the ascension of Christ. Why did Jesus need to ascend? And I've identified, and I I don't mean to imply that these are the only possible reasons to derive from a study of God's Word, but I've identified for myself 12 significant reasons why Jesus had to ascend back to heaven. And we're working our way through that list. But let me reread the passage here in Acts 1, starting in verse 9. why jesus had to ascend what we've covered so far is the first four of those 12 we've looked at the concept that jesus ascended in order to be reunited with his father in the unique and special relationship that only the two of them enjoy, and the fullness of the joy that he experienced in that reuniting with his heavenly father as he returned to heaven the second is jesus returned to heaven in order to be fully glorified in order to be restored with the glory that he enjoyed before he got up off the throne and laid aside his glory in order to be incarnated and accomplish the great mission of redemption and salvation that he came to this world in order to fulfill the third reason is that he went to heaven in order to secure a place for us uh, the the wording that some of us are more familiar with traditionally is he went to prepare a place or prepare a mansion for us and we've seen that that's really A somewhat naturally viewpoint naturally speaking somewhat misunderstood the idea is that his return to heaven actually like a like a reservation at a special restaurant it secured a spot for us in heaven forever and ever and ever and then the fourth reason in which last sunday while i had good intentions to cover uh multiple reasons we ended up slowing way down and i spent the entire study on this single reason and i think the reason i ended up doing that i hadn't really planned to to burn up the entire teaching time on this one study focus is that it's one of the least understood of the 12 and i hope uh, your hearts were encouraged by uh, coming to understand in a greater way that he ascended to heaven in order to lead a host of captives in captivity to heaven the idea being that those that had died between adam and john the baptist so to speak who knew the lord were faithful to the lord were in a saving relationship with the lord when they died during the entire old covenant time period their souls went to a place that was identified by jesus in the gospel of luke as abraham's side or traditionally referred to as abraham's bosom also known as paradise this location which was for the redeemed for the saved was a pleasant location a spiritual location and a pleasant experience but nevertheless not heaven itself No single human being had entered into heaven until Jesus entered into heaven at the event of his ascension. And when he did, he first went to Abraham's side and he evacuated that entire location of all of the souls that were there waiting for him, waiting for his incarnation and his great victory in the cross and the resurrection. And then he led them in a victorious procession into the gates of heaven itself and their souls since that time reside there with him in heaven as well as any redeemed any saved that have died since the ascension until today their souls go immediately to heaven and had he not ascended we would have no immediate access to heaven ourselves all right so that's where we left off and we're going to try to um, we're going to try to Make up some ground here today. And um, I say that um, only, yeah, only hopefully. (laughs) Our next great uh, reason why Jesus ascended is Jesus ascended, and this is one that you should mostly all be familiar with already. He ascended in order to pour out or to send the Holy Spirit to his people on earth in a new and greater way than the Holy Spirit had ever been in this world prior to the ascension of Christ. So, let's start with this. Head all the way back, if you would, to the beginning of God's book, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to see right from the beginning the presence of and the activity of the Holy Spirit of God in what becomes known as history. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then this super important description, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the picture here is the world already created but not yet fully arranged in the way that it will need to be arranged by the time we get to the end of chapter 1 in the first week of creation. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God is there. And He is not passive he is active and he's engaged in the process of what god is about to accomplish and and an interesting description here he's described here as hovering over the face of the waters i I, I just find some of the descriptions in god's word you know they're, they're i think they're meant to kind of catch our perspective um What things in the world around us hover? Okay, drones hover, hummingbirds hover, uh, bees hover, um, helicopters hover, blimps hover. You know, there's a few things that hover, but not everything. Hover craft hover. Um, What we're talking about is, is movement, but in a relatively stable way in a specific location. And here the location is the entire planet Earth in its already created but not yet fully arranged state. So the Spirit of God is present in the Earth and how much of the Earth is he present in? In this picture, the entire planet. And he's hovering in a sense, encompassing in a sense, because the surface of the planet at this moment is all water, 100% water. That's the implication. He's hovering over the entire surface of the planet, which I think the whole point of hovering is he's already in motion, and yet he is fully, stably engaged in what he's about to do. He's getting ready for the rest of chapter one. Now, the reason I read this in relationship to one of the great reasons why Jesus ascended is to just show us right from the beginning how present And how engaged and how involved the Holy Spirit has been in the work of God from the very beginning of human history. History as we know it and have experienced and have been told about it. But something happens in the ascension of Christ that changes the nature of the Spirit of God's presence and engagement and activity in this world. Not in a... We went from great to something lesser, but from the standpoint of we went from great to something even greater. So let's turn from Genesis chapter one to the Gospel of John, and you should be familiar with these next couple of passages I'm going to be reading. Gospel of John chapter 16. The scene here, of course, is the Last Supper, and Jesus is interacting with his disciples the 11 of them um judah uh, judas has already left the room he's gone to do his dirty work of betraying the lord and the 11 who remain in jesus with them he is spending a concentrated final teaching time with his disciples it's meant to encourage them it's meant to strengthen them it's meant to get them ready for the great trial that they're in, they're about to experience their trial is not as great as his he's going to the cross they're not but they're going to be losing their benefit of his presence and his protection over the next few hours the next few days until he rises again from the dead But in this last teaching time here in John 16, he says this, starting in verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And uh, I've talked about this so many times, but it's worth (coughs) making sure we don't miss the point. When did Jesus ever not tell them the truth? Was there ever one single time where he said, I'm going to see if I can fool them this time? I'm going to tell them something that's not true, see if I can get them to believe it. So why would he say, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's simply because everything he's ever told them is truth, but certain truths are more important than other truths. All truths are important, and especially truths that come from the lips of the Lord himself. But even from the lips of the Lord, there are some truths that are rising in significance to an even greater level than all of the other truths that he proclaims and explains to his people. This is one of them. And when he says, nevertheless, I tell the truth, it's his signal to his people, stop. Look, they've been going since, he's been talking since chapter 13. So how long does that take? They're, they've been spending this night together and he's been pouring out teaching. I've had this experience. You've had this experience listening to me many times. I'm droning on and on. And you know what I'm saying is really important. But is it possible for you to kind of phase out for a minute? Some of you may have already phased out for a minute. <laughs> and so there are moments where you... You want to stop as a teacher and say, hey, phase back in here, because what I'm about to say, don't miss, don't miss this point. And so this is one of those phase-in moments for them. So verse seven again, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, if we were to just stop there, if that's all he had said, it would have left them scratching their spiritual heads. How could that possibly be? They are in the position of all of the human beings that are alive on the surface of the earth at this moment in history of greatest advantage. No one else on the, on the surface of the planet has the advantage they have at this moment. Why? They're in the same room as the Messiah. The Lord. The Savior. The Chosen One. There they're having a private dinner with him and talking to him. And how many millions of people are alive at this moment in history on the surface of the planet and they don't have the access that they have, that these 11 have. And he says to them, it's to your advantage that I go away. That you lose this advantage. It's to your advantage that you lose this advantage. That's one of the Things that the Lord will occasionally do—you've encountered other passages where He does similar things, where He says something that kind of like twists our perspective, you know, out of shape from what we expect, and then, for a moment, we're we're kind of disoriented and confused, and then and then it begins to dawn on our perspective that He said it in order to lead us to an even greater perspective, and He's doing that for them here. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away. And thankfully he explains why it's to their advantage. He doesn't leave them guessing. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now, to fully develop the concept of the helper here, we would have to go through chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and and look at each point at which the Lord introduced this is the concept of, the helper and it's an interesting comparison a side-by-side comparison an intentional comparison in these chapters in this last supper event jesus identifies two individuals as helper one of which is himself and the other and this is the reference here is to the holy spirit and the idea of helper here is not simply um someone you're in a relationship with and and they're just there to kind of do the, the, the menial work for you. They're helping you, kind of like uh, you can hire someone to come in and help you with the work around your home. And it doesn't mean you look down upon them, but they're not necessarily in a, a relationship of equality or possibly even a relationship of superiority to you. But here, the helper is in a relationship to these disciples of, at bare minimum, a relationship of equality and really in a relationship of spiritual superiority the helper is the one who comes alongside the one who has spiritual needs they're not able to resolve for themselves and lends the exact and specific help to them gives help to them that's going to move them from one spiritual growth point to another spiritual growth point and the the inference is they would never be able to get there make that progress along that pathway of spiritual progression without the help of the helper so he says nevertheless i tell you the truth it's to your advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper will not come to you but if i go and where is he going to go if he goes they don't know yet but he's about to reveal it to them he's going back to heaven in the event that we're studying the ascension but if i go i will send him to you now this is one of the great principles involved in the ascension and it's the one we have to be focused on right now which is the holy spirit came to the disciples later and we know the event we're we're not yet there in acts chapter two it's the day of pentecost the great outpouring of the holy spirit but all of that happened because the lord jesus ascended back to heaven and had he not ascended the day of pentecost event would never have happened not just for the people that were there that day and their experience of it but for all believers that have ever followed, including you and me. Verse eight, and when he comes, this is the helper and this is his work, this is his focus in ministry. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Another ascension reference. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged i still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes so the spirit of truth is here identified with helper two terms two names same person in view when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak. It doesn't mean whatever he just hears in random conversation happening on earth. The implication is whatever he hears from God the Father, he will then pass on to God's people. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All right, so now let's jump to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And of course, we'll revisit this when we eventually, years from now, make it to Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verse 33. This is part of Peter's day of Pentecost proclamation to the gathered unbelievers that were uh, curious about what had happened with the outpouring of the holy spirit and um, this was his salvation message but we're reading verse 30 let me read 32 and 33 this jesus god raised up speaking of the resurrection of and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted This is now, as he's just mentioned, the, the resurrection. Now he shifts to the ascension. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, the Lord Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus had to ascend in order for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. Now, We're going to jump back. I know I'm going a little bit back and forth here, jumping back to the Gospel of John, back to chapter 14, and we're going to look at a super important passage starting in verse 16. This is still Last Supper instruction. Verse 15. I'll, I'll start reading verse 15 of chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And by the way, uh, the word another there, as it translates a, a Greek word for comparison of two things, there's two different words that can be used. One could be a comparison between two different things and another can be a comparison between two similar things. It's the second one that John uses so the helper that's being described here is similar to another helper and that other helper was jesus himself during the time of his his ministry here on earth the three years he spent with his disciples ministering he was their helper but it's to their advantage that he went away so that another helper in a sense could replace him and now he is referencing this other helper and his ministry I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, one like me, in other words, to be with you forever. So Jesus spent three years with his disciples then physically left, not abandoning them, but to provide a greater presence of a greater helper, not for three years only, but forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, and then this statement, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus briefly describes the distinction now, the difference between at the moment of the Last Supper, their present relationship with the Holy Spirit, compared to what will be their future relationship with the holy spirit so he uses simply two simple prepositions to describe the difference to highlight the difference right now if we're putting ourselves in their sandals at the last supper the holy spirit is with us that means if someone's with you like if you go some location and you take someone with you what does that mean It means they're in your direct and immediate presence. You have a connection to them. You have a relationship with them. You can interact with them. They can help you. But then he says he will be the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth is presently with you. But in the future, and that moment for them is going to be, of course, the day of Pentecost event. The Holy Spirit will be in them. Meaning, he is literally going to move into their physical bodies and make their physical bodies his permanent home. Making them function in this world like the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Covenant era functioned, the dwelling place of God's presence on earth now at the moment Jesus spoke these words who did the Holy Spirit inhabit in that way only one only Jesus that we saw that evidenced in the event of his baptism as David was teaching on Thursday night when the, the Spirit of God descended upon him in the visible symbolic form of a dove and rested on him and John's testimony is and remaining on him never to leave him. The whole signification there is that the Holy Spirit had a unique and special internal dwelling relationship with the Lord Jesus. But at this moment in history, he's the only one that has that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. The disciples have their own relationship with the Holy Spirit, but it's a with you relationship, not an in you relationship. But from the ascension forward, from the day of pentecost where he pours out the holy spirit forward they have a new and greater relationship with the holy spirit and not just them everyone that comes to know the lord from that moment forward in history that now folds you and i into this equation when we truly are born again come to know the lord the holy spirit immediately he doesn't go through a transition thing okay first three years of being a christian the holy spirit's only with you And then at the three-year mark, you get the special blessing of graduating to an in-you relationship. From the literal moment, the nanosecond of your new birth, the Holy Spirit moves inside of your physical body and makes you his permanent, permanent how long permanent? Forever permanent home. Now, the significance of that is vastly underestimated, even by believers. It's the difference between a new covenant relationship with the Lord and an old covenant relationship with the Lord. And trust me, if you lived in the old covenant era and you had a true and saving relationship with the Lord, you would be, you would be forever grateful for it and you would have no room to complain about it. But he promised something even greater for us. As a reminder, we studied this. I head over for just a moment to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. The greatest... Uh, a display of this, demonstration of this. Matthew chapter 11. And I'm talking about this difference between an old covenant relationship with the Lord, a new covenant relationship with the Lord, a relationship in the old where the Holy Spirit is with you as a believer to a relationship, a new covenant relationship in the new where the Holy Spirit is in you. Matthew chapter 11. This is Jesus describing the person and ministry of john the baptist i won't have time to cover all of the details of this we did cover it in great detail when we worked our way through the gospel of matthew together those messages are still available on sermon audio if you want to listen to it but verse 11 this is where jesus again kind of clues his disciples in stop and really think about what i'm about to say truly i say to you among those born of women Now, how many of those are included? How many of those, because those is a category, how many of those are included as you consider the entire history of humanity from Adam forward? All except for two, and that was just by practical necessity. Who were the two that are accepted? Adam and Eve. Neither one was born of women. Adam was formed of clay god breathed directly into his nostrils the breath of life became a living soul and then god you know put him in intensive care and and took a rib out and formed the rib into a woman neither was born of a woman so just for for reasons (laughs) important reasons the first two were accepted but everyone entering into this world as a human being since adam and eve has been born of woman no exceptions even the lord jesus himself was not an exception to the born of woman category but this is what he says and he's talking about from john the baptist backwards through all of old covenant history among those born of woman or women there has arisen no one greater than than John the Baptist. And our emphasis here is simply that if you were to line up all of the great heroes of the faith, from Adam to to Enoch to Noah to to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses and on and on and on through old covenant history. You line them all up and now you rank them. You make a list who's greatest spiritually speaking and of course when you make a rank of of that nature and you can jesus is even encouraging us to consider all who have lived up until john the baptist from that perspective you want to make that rank based upon god's evaluation not your own you want to make it based upon how god views them in terms of potential or theoretical spiritual greatness And this is God's evaluation. We can be confident of that because it's the evaluation of the Lord Jesus. There's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was greater than Moses. He was greater than Noah. He was greater than Isaiah. He was greater than Abraham. Yet, yet, in spite of that reality, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, you and I, because of the saving work of Christ, and only because of the saving work of Christ, are now considered to be in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, there's a future greatest reality experience of what that signifies and what that means, but right now you're in the kingdom. Paul later in in one of his letters, I believe it's the letter to the Colossians in chapter one, he talks about salvation experience being a transfer of our souls from one kingdom to another kingdom, being transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. So we are in the kingdom in a way that John the Baptist had not experienced, nor any who were lesser than him. And his implication is the least in the kingdom Now, I don't think the least in the kingdom is in this room. But someone is the least in the kingdom. How can you be least in the kingdom? What that means is probably the least fruitful. There are some believers that are less fruitful than others in their service to the Lord. So just think about it this way who's the least fruitful true believer? born again believer, saved believer who has ever lived in the new covenant era. We don't know who they are. They're so obscure that we would never learn their name. And Jesus says that one is spiritually greater than John the Baptist. That's what he said. I didn't make it up. He said it. It must be true. He even prefaced it with a truly I say to you, don't miss this point. Why are they greater? One reason and one reason only. The Holy Spirit was with John the Baptist, but the, even the least in the kingdom of heaven, the Holy Spirit is living inside of them. That's why we're greater. And only why. Not because our personality's greater, not because our abilities are greater, not because... There's anything about us apart from the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that makes us greater, but that does make us actually really greater. Now, if that was the only reason that Jesus ascended, and I'm in the process of giving you 11 other great reasons, but if that was the only reason, it would be well worth his ascension back to heaven in order to pour out the holy spirit upon us in that way all right let's move on to our next one so we will looks like time wise, we will get two done i doubled my output from last week yeah i am Now this one is an interesting one. I'm going to skip over the next one I have on my list just because it's going to take me more than 15 minutes. Uh, And I'm going to go to the third one that was on my list today. Uh, And I'll come back to the one I'm skipping and I'll make that first next week, Lord willing. Um, Let's head over to the book of Ephesians, chapter four. This is probably, out of all of the, 12 reasons I'm giving you for the ascension, significant reasons why Jesus had to ascend. This is probably the least focused on. I haven't, you know, I've been in the Lord for over 40 years now. I've never heard one single teaching on this other than when I actually actively have looked for it in a a good Ephesians commentary. So I know people have taught on this. But in terms of just like listening to Good teaching out there in the wider Christian community. I've never heard anyone teach on this particular topic. It's just somewhat overlooked. but the the hugeness of what it describes um, tells me we shouldn't overlook it. So Ephesians chapter four, and I'm going to read, starting in verse eight and it's pretty clear in verse 8 that the the, uh, emphasis here, the focus here is on the ascension, and we even used verse 8 in our study last time about leading captivity captive. Therefore it says, it here, remember, is uh, the book of Psalms, and specifically what's being referred to here by Paul is Psalm 68, which is a messianic psalm, and it has great implications for revealing God's work in the ascension. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The one I'm skipping over today is the he gave gifts to men part. We'll come back to that, Lord willing, next week. Verse nine, and saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, meaning in order to ascend he first had to descend it's not just and this is an important distinction it's not just he first had to be born of course he had to be born practically speaking he had to incarnate but the the point that paul is highlighting is his starting point as a human being was not his birth in the in the um, manger of bethlehem his starting point was actually no starting point at all it's just a starting point of a journey not a starting point of existence he came from heaven he descended from heaven where he always existed but he actually got up off the throne at a specific moment in human history and laid aside his glory and incarnated as a human being by descending into the earth into humanity verse 10 he who descended is the one who also ascended after his descent. He lived his life here in this world. He died his saving, sacrificial death on the cross. He rose victoriously from the dead and then he ascended. But here we were given a reason for his ascension. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. You'll notice heavens is plural, implying there's a a multiplicity of heavens. How many heavens are there? We've studied this before. From the biblical and spiritual worldview, there are exactly how many heavens? Three, not the traditional, you've heard this occasionally maybe growing up, uh, seven heavens. That's kind of a Catholic thing that somehow, I don't know, someone came up with the concept and added it to Um, biblical perspective uh, there's three and three only the first heaven is the immediate atmosphere directly surrounding the surface of the planet so you look up in the sky you're looking up at heaven number one then at night you're able to see beyond the atmosphere and, and only in the presence of the sun and the moon at certain times during the day, you're able to see beyond the immediate at- atmosphere. But at night, it becomes apparent and obvious every single night that there is a greater heaven beyond the heaven of our atmosphere. And that is the known and visible universe in all of its fullest extent. And we're growing, as we grow technologically as a society, we're growing in our ability to understand just how massive that second heaven actually is we've got a new telescope up in up in space now the web um telescope and it is seeing things in greater detail that were never perceived by human natural and physical observation before now and it's just obvious that the the universe as we call it is massively extensive so that's the second heaven the third heaven is heaven itself the dwelling place of god where the throne room of heaven is situated where the redeemed go to meet the lord where the lord himself is ruling over all things including the third heaven the second heaven and the first heaven and all that's under the first heaven on this planet and all other things and so He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. And then this last phrase, that. The word that is what we call a purpose phrase connector. It it indicates that what's about to follow the word that explains the reason for the action that's just happened. The action that's just happened in Paul's teaching is Christ has ascended far above the heavens. And he's situated there now in the greatest and ultimate heaven, the third heaven. And he's situated there for this reason, that he might fill all things. What does that mean? And how big is that? Well, all things is a pretty broad category. Pretty big category. How many things are included in this phrase? All things. Everything is included in that category. Everything that has existence is included in that category. In some amazing sense, When Jesus ascended back to heaven, he then filled everything. Now, let me just draw a boundary line around that so we don't misunderstand. Because in our day and age, with all kinds of new age wonky spiritual perspectives that are out there, we could misunderstand the implication. Christ filled all things, and I'll try to take a shot in just a moment explaining what that means, but what it doesn't mean is that he has the same relationship with all things that he fills. He doesn't have the same relationship with all things. Just like when he was here in this world with his immediate personal and physical presence, he did not have the same relationship with every human being that he encountered. He had different relationships with different people depending upon how their hearts responded to his heart. So he had some who embraced him, loved him, and followed him, and he had some that hated him, despised him, and attempted to murder him and actually did carry out a conspiracy to murder him. Did he have the same relationship with the Pharisees that he had with his own disciples? The answer is obviously not. Completely different relationship, though he was physically present with both. So now, in some mysterious sense, and it's an important one, Christ fills all things since his ascension, but that doesn't imply he has the same kind of saving relationship with all things or all people. But it does imply something. What does it imply? Well, the first thing that it implies is simply this. God has, this is something that, that um, Steve has um, taken us through and in the um, systematic theology study that he's doing on Thursday nights, God has these special qualities that we call attributes. And they distinguish him from others so that we recognize because of these attributes God is rightly defined and described as God. Some of his attributes he chooses to share with his people. We call those his communicable attributes. So God is love, special kind of love, it's unique love, it's holy love, it's spiritual love, it's powerful love, the Greek word you're familiar with, it's agape love. God is love. Does that mean that no no one of us can ever actually experience loving someone with agape love? Now we're called to love one another with agape love and we're told in the book of Romans that the agape love of God, just like the presence of the Holy Spirit, the agape love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And it's been poured out by the presence and involvement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So we are to share God's agape love. Doesn't mean that we'll ever, I don't think I've ever once loved anybody as deeply as Christ has loved me. But, nevertheless, he calls me to love like he loves. But there are other attributes of God that I have never shared, I've never experienced, and I never will. Not even in eternity to come. I will never be like God in those ways. And we call those his incommunicable attributes because he doesn't share them with us and he can't share them with us. Why can't he? There's very few things that God can't do. Very few. But sharing his incommunicable attributes is one of them. Why can't he share? Here's an communic- incommunicable attribute of God. God is all-powerful. We call it omnipotent. God is everywhere present, we call that omnipresence. God knows all things, we call that omniscience. There are qualities of God that set him apart from all others. If I were suddenly to be granted all power, how would that change me? How it would change me is I would stop being a human being and I would become God. But no one can become God. No one can become God. No one ever has, no one ever will. So one of those incommunicable attributes that I just described is the omnipresence of the Lord, that that only God himself is everywhere present. And how can he be everywhere present? Because he fills all things. So when Christ incarnated as a human being, he localized himself in it to a physical body that was only in one place at one time, and that's it. But when he ascended back on high, he once again filled all things as he had previously done. Now why does he fill all things? Besides just demonstrating that he is omnipresence and therefore is God, head back to chapter one and we'll end with this Passage. We're in Ephesians still. I, I said we'll end with this, but I'll, I'm just going to link this to one other passage that I'll quickly read after I read this one. This is uh, Ephesians one verse twenty. This is part of a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians, and it's where we get the "Open the eyes of my heart" cry that we that we sang in our our worship time, and it's really an ascension prayer. Remember, I, I highlighted this last week, even that that Paul was praying this for the ephesians that the eyes of their hearts would be open and enlightened to understand the fullness of what was accomplished in the ascension of christ and we'll pick up with that at verse 20 that the the power of god that he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him now we're in the ascension aspect at his right hand in the heavenly places He seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. Head means simply, the easiest description I can give you, in charge. When you're the head of something, you're in charge of what you're head of he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so there's that filling all things aspect that happens at the ascension but he filled all things in order to once again but now in even fuller expression to be in charge of all things someone one of the members of the church just recently shared a a brief encouraging word with me for me for my sake as a pastor and they said you know you're you're not I don't ever see you being afraid of much of stuff that goes on happens in the world around you and if that's true and i believe it's mostly true if that's true it's for this reason and this reason only i am 100% convinced that jesus fills all things and because he fills all things he is head over all things And because he's head over all things, he is in charge of everything. So my confidence is in him, not in all the things that are either going the way I think they should go or, you know, apparently or seemingly spinning out of control in the way I don't want to see them go. He is in charge. And I said I'd link it. Uh, Let's look at an Old Testament passage real quick and we will end. And um, Tim, you can, after this, you can... uh, start getting us ready for our final song Jeremiah chapter 23 old covenant prophecy but pointing forward to the things that we've been discussing this is the Lord speaking and uh, just as a hint when the Lord speaks in the Old Testament it's the same Lord as the Lord who later speaks from Galilee and so this is the Lord Jesus, Speaking in one of his pre-incarnate um, declarations to a prophet he had chosen by the name of jeremiah chapter 23 just a single verse verse 24 i'll read 23 and 24 am i a god at hand declares the lord and not a god far away what does that mean Am I God that's close to you, but then as soon as you leave my temple or leave my tabernacle, I'm a million miles away from your life and your perspective and your concerns. His point is, no. Wherever you go, I'm there, and I'm already engaged. Verse 24, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And the answer to that, that's what we call... You know, a uh, rhetorical question. It has an obvious answer. When the Lord says, Do I not fill heaven and earth? His people with a resounding chorus should answer and say, Yes, Lord, you fill heaven and earth. And that's where we derive 100% of our confidence. You fill heaven and earth, indicating you're in charge of all things in heaven and on earth. And therefore, I'm at peace and I'm at rest with you. Jesus ascended in order to be yet again and in an even greater way, the one who fills all things. Amen.